Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. Well, that is a really good way of putting it. And I'm super excited because this week we've got an author joining us who has written a book about UFOs of the First World War. Now, there is uh, there's a thing about um, UFOs which is particularly perplexing, and that is the fact that what people tend to report ties into what is relevant in their own historic uh, technological era, right? So in the Second World War, we have the Foo Fighters. And, well, I'm not talking about Dave Grohl's band. The Foo Fighters are named after... um, Reports and so they first came in when the 415th Night Fighter Squadron uh, reported that there were strange and mysterious lights following them on their wingtips. And these Foo Fighters turn out to be something that are massively reported on the Allied side. But also, we discover after the war has ended reported on the side of the enemy on the side of the axis powers and so and, and that set the tone really for the 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 kind of saucer shape that we kind of think of as a ufo right uh well yeah that absolutely but but that comes l- like years years later that's when we get um, like the term the UFO, but during these times, we have these strange lights, and during the Second World War, we have uh, these lights where the you know uh, radars can't pick them up, and they are elusive, and they're hanging off the wings and whatever. But what I found really extraordinary was. I didn't realise that when you go back to the First World War, there was something that was, you know, there was a whole load of um, phenomena that were relevant to that period, but also sort of technologically uh, different to what we got in the Foo Fighters. And this this is what Nigel has put together. And it, it is one heck of a book. And um, really detailed with so many follow-ups. So I think probably the best thing I could do is uh, to introduce Nigel. Now, Nigel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, good to speak to you. I'm glad you like the book so much as well. Um, yeah, it did take quite a, a lot of doing. And it's um kind of collaborative effort, really, because people... Um, since the 1970s have taken a great interest in uh, old cases. So people um, in the United States and New Zealand, Australia and Europe have all um, researched this information. So it's just not just my research. Um, in fact, I, um, I acknowledge that the, the book itself is uh, a tribute to Granville Oldroyd who uh, did lots of research in the public records office in um, London 
and he used to send me um, tons of material he meticulously found in the files. So, um, you know, so, so um, you know, he died a few years ago, so I've kind of dedicated the book to him because he did so much research. I've also added lots of research from lots of other people and my own newspaper research as well. And um, I think the good thing now is that with the internet, people can access uh, digital newspaper files so we can look up their own material as well, which is quite quite exciting if you come across a case in your own, you know, local newspapers. And there's always, um, you know, new, new reports to look out for because there's so much, you know, um, so many newspapers of that period. So um, uh, it's worth having a look, really. And, and also looking for periods when... Um, the word discrete UFO flaps or flaps of sightings of airships or things. But uh, it's worth looking beyond those periods because sometimes you'll pick up the odd story. Um, you know, a lot of them might be of um, meteors or strange lights, but it does show that even, you know, going back 100 years, uh, people were still fascinated by anything odd in the sky. Yeah, well, I I think... What I'd like to do is get onto some of the specifics of uh, the cases which are in great detail in your book. But at the beginning, one of the things that most struck me was um, in your introduction, you talk about how there there is a long history of peculiar lights, be they described as will-o'-the-wisps or ghost lights or whatever. And that then sort of trans that uh, uh transitions i suppose into things like the airship scares or in the us that go back as far as 1897 so but what was it that really drew you into this because this is a very detailed book and this doesn't seem like something which is sort of thrown together in a few years before we started this you sort of intimated that you'd maybe started this like 40 years ago what was it that really drew you into this um it was because i i originally began um investigating local cases i lived in scunthorpe in lincolnshire and um i started collecting cases and finding you know a lot of them i'd quite a few explanations and everything. So I thought, um, and I looked in the old newspaper files and found there were a few old cases from like 1909, 1913. And I thought, well, if I looked at the old historical files, they couldn't be easily explained as, um, you know, satellites or um, spaceship imagination. So I thought, in a way, it'd be... Look, looking at cases that hasn't been contem- uh, contaminated by our own views of a space age. But um, so it, it just started with me going to the local newspaper office and um, I'd, I'd already read um, the works of Charles Fort and he lists um, quite a few airship sightings um, in Britain in 1909 and 1913, which were the major so airship scares before the First World War. Um, so I sort of started there and then I started going to the different other places. And then um, I corresponded with um, 
David Clark in Sheffield and Granville Odride in Markham in Lancashire. And they were both doing a similar sort of research. So we kind of collated our material. And um, somebody called Carl Grove had written quite a few um, pieces about phantom airships in the Flying Saucer Review in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s. So we kind of used that as a launching point. Uh, I think another thing that happened in the 1970s, as we had uh, John Keel talking about ultra-terrestrials, and he was the first to kind of popularise the idea that um, aliens and UFOs always change their shape according to our, you know, technological exp um, ex um, um, expectations. And indeed noted the um, the American airship scare of eighteen ninety six and ninety seven. So I think it was it was quite a, a guiding influence really for us to sort of plow on and investigate this. And um, also, like you say, um, there was this transition from people seeing lights, will of a wisp, which um, were more like um, in the context of fairy law or um, religious um, sightings, whereas airships were more of a secular thing. These were actual man-made physical objects, whereas in the past, the will of the wisps might be, a, you know, a ghostly type creature or, you know, something that was haunting a graveyard or something. So it was more um, a supernatural force, whereas um, with the airships, you know, people actually believed um, it was actually um, something created by humans, really. Except, you know, there were odd cases where people did speak about sort of aliens and spaceships, perhaps, but that was very rare, really. Well, that that's interesting because one of the the early sightings, so this, this is one of the... Um, first parts of your book before we get into the first world war we talk about you you talk about um in the usa the 1908 sightings and there is uh, a passage there about a bright light seen near kent washington and you discuss the fact that there are newspapers who talk about this red glowing light as being belonging to a japanese airship and 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 this sort of feels to me like so we're, we're still you know a few years away from the first world war but it feels like the first time where there is a confusion between whether people are sort of engaging in a uh, a panic or there is something really to be seen mm, i think i think that's um quite a, a big aspect of the early sightings particularly in britain there was a panic about um you know german zeppelins basically there's lots of publicity surrounding count zeppelin and uh, you know his zeppelins were huge um you know, war machines, basically. And Britain relied a lot on its defence from the Royal Navy. So, uh, and our um, development of uh, aircraft was pretty limited in comparison to Germany. 
uh, in particular, we, we didn't really have a kind of airships and zeppelins that they had. Um, so it was very much seen as a sort of foreign threat. And I think, you know, that occurs in the American 1896-97 scare as well. People said uh, they're occupied by Japanese. So there's obviously this idea of a foreign invader piloting these craft. And, and perhaps in a way today, um, UFOs are kind of a metaphor for the foreign. You know, they are, you know, literally alien. They're, they're the nightmare aliens that are coming to take us away. Right. And, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, the, um, the past was kind of was a prelude to such ideas, really, but couched more in, you know, um, earthly terms rather than extraterrestrial. I just, I, well, just on on that point, I, I just wanted to ask: Do you think that it, that is people almost projecting and transferring their thoughts and fears on something that they're seeing that they can't quite comprehend, or do you think something else is going on? Um, well, people like John Keel and um, Flying Saucer Review, basically, I think their idea was that um, aliens or some ultra-terrestrial forces were kind of projecting these images towards us so that they were kind of um, projections that manipulated our minds so uh, and pre they presented themselves in a way that we'd be able to uh, handle uh, right. you know mental state but you could also argue um, rather than for the top-down uh, hypothesis was more that um, it was well more uh, human psychology you know we we were expecting to see aircraft or hoping to see aircraft. And um, perhaps we were just projecting our imagination on the sky, which is, you know, um, more a psychological and sociological point of view, mm. um, where you can try and, you know, eliminate aliens and extraterrestrials. But, you know, there's always grey areas where, you know, you can, you know, pardon the pun really, but there are grey areas where you cannot uh, really define whether it is something really extraterrestrial or, or psychological because, you know, obviously looking at older cases, you can't really interview the witnesses, but some sightings are gen genuinely um, inexplicable really and it's hard to know, you know, where fact and fiction merge together but you know that's the old fascinating thing about these cases well what i think that is a really good point because one of the things that stood out for me in your book was the number of sightings that took place all over the world i think um a lot of times when we talk about these sightings we probably like i and i say the royal we um it's considered that a lot of these sightings happen in America and we've got some very um, uh, uh, sort of prominent cases like the Battle of Los Angeles and such such thing. But um, after you've, in, in your book, after you speak about the USA sightings, you then go on to talk about uh, the Danish 1908 wave and the Australia 1909 wave. And this just makes me feel like there is 
something going on globally and you sort of allude to the fact that um there are these sightings that are going on and they're by all sorts of different people so in the australian one particularly because australia is so remote this is 1909 and you talk about these school children seeing what looks like a dirigible i suppose with a um like a uh i don't know what you call it like a pontoon below it coming towards them and then going away back to the blue mountains this is something this is like almost an impossibility for 1909 right yeah um yeah you'd think australia would be the last place to be really um fearful of you know german zeppelins or threats from the from any um, other foreign country. Um, but a lot of rumours did spread that there were German uh, ships off the shore of uh, Australia and they were launching airships. And I think the Blue Mountain case might have been uh, where people use that as an explanation. And obviously uh, um, some of the sightings were just lights in the sky and everything. So, you know, quite a lot of cases can be eliminated as being planets or Venus. But um, where the school children saw this object, it obviously seemed to have an impact on them because um, their school teacher also saw it and she was like praying because she thought it was the end of the world, you know. So, you know, it wow. obviously wasn't just something like Venus. And you yeah. sometimes get that in, in some other cases where people think, you know, this is the end or something, you know. So, you know, it was more than just a sort of light in the sky. And, but, it, it, you know, that one's quite a good, that's that's quite a good sighting. And obviously there's a, a long tradition of school children seeing U, UFOs in the playground. Yes, yes, absolutely. But if you go back, like, to, to your account of the Danish 1908 wave, um, th one of the first... Uh, descriptions of it uh, includes the fact that um, the sighted object is a is the size of an eagle, and it has it has two wings, and yet it is still described as an airship, which you wouldn't you know the the the, the thought of an airship it isn't the size of a large bird with two wings and so i wondered whether what we're getting to in these early stages is almost like a we're trying to work towards a description of a ufo but we don't yet know what to call it i think a good point um um, somebody made a long time ago is that the word ufo or flying saucer gave us an umbrella term to look at anything seen in the sky and men in black and all sorts of other things, uh, you know, we take for granted now. But having the right words can give you the umbrella to look at, um, uh, you know, what aspects of it come under, you know, that term. Um, at that time, um, you know, we call them phantom airships or just, uh, you know, mystery uh, in the sky or something. And I think people did grapple with trying to describe what they saw. Um, if you look at some of the, the earlier American sightings, um, 
for sort of impossible craft. We've got wings, I've got rotors, I've got rudders, you know, we're sort of like, uh, we've just chucked in anything they imagine a flying craft might have. So you, you wonder how much of that is imagination and how much of it is, uh, you know, what we actually saw. And perhaps, you know, we didn't have the right words, you know, terminology to really describe what, what we actually saw. So, yeah, it's quite interesting, like, um, people said it looked like a bird because it had wings on it, sort of thing. I think um, I think with the Danish cases, they um, also said we often describe them as sort of balloons and that sort of, um, you know, relating it to balloons and that sort of thing, really. But sometimes they, they move in such a way that it, it couldn't possibly be a balloon, um, which is something John Kill wrote about with... Um, mystery aircraft was seen in the 1930s. And he said, you know, um, some of them were flying in weather conditions impossible for conventional aircraft. You know, there must have been something really, uh, something else. So, um, you know, there again, it shows how people have changed what they report. They see, you know, airships. Uh, before the First World War and during it, and then afterwards it's mystery aircraft, because obviously aircraft are more likely to be seen than a Zeppelin. Yeah, so are you, are you say, you're kind of saying to me there that, you know, whenever it was 1908, that almost the word airship was a kind of generic overarching term for what we'd call a UFO today, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that's it. Um, I think also... If you look at papers of a period, I think it's worth looking at other stories alongside just the phantom airship sightings. There were lots of stories of um, inventors in the Australian uh, wave. There are two or three stories of newspapers tracking down local inventors, you know, thinking they might be responsible for some of these sightings. And obviously there's always somebody cashing in on a bandwagon and sort of saying, oh, yeah, you know, it it was my airship flying that night just to get a bit of funding, really. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so in a a way, um, you know, people do use... um, what what we expect to see really yeah. well it it's interesting you say that because i was going to ask you uh about the potential for breakaway civilizations so um we're probably all aware of the papers relating to the sonora aero club which is yeah we which um for any of our listeners who don't know this is a supposed secret society who were, I guess, uh, largely inventors who would present their latest flying machines to each other. And this is a supposed explanation for why we see airships before airships are a thing. But nobody has been able to prove whether the Sonora Aero Club is, is real or not. Yeah, um, I haven't really gone into much detail about that, but uh, it was a collection of kind of um, books, really, of uh, intricate drawings of airships and writing. I think some of it was written in quite a cryptic fashion. So, you know, it might have just been a kind of work of uh, fiction and using airships to sort of imagine a society. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I think Jerome Clark has mainly um, investigated that, but uh, it's something that uh, makes uh, the case that there are sort of esoteric elements to these sightings as well, and often they get kind of split up. If something's magical or ghostly, it goes to sort of paranormal investigators, whereas sort of if it's a light in the sky, it goes to UFO investigators. And yeah. we, another interesting thing with having the term flying sorcerer UFO is that when airships were seen in the past, um, there wasn't, um, because there wasn't an overall term, so there was no one there to really study it. So there'd only be newspaper reporters doing it and then they'd go on to the next story. So there wasn't any sort of con- continuity and there weren't any sort of groups investigating it. Um, and it wasn't until really the, the First World War that the British actually um, made an effort to investigate sightings and lights in the sky, um, obviously with a, a view to national defence. And um, um, police forces were um, <coughs> instructed to send any sightings to the, um, the war office in London and were there. Our civil servants uh, kind of uh, looked through these to see if they were worth investigating over by military intelligence. So, um, in a way, that that was almost like a Project Blue Book. But, uh, I was going to come on to that because you did mention uh, Men in Black earlier. And, you know, we that kind of fits the narrative we have at the moment around UFOs, the kind of military, government cover-up, men in black. Were, were there, was there that narrative around at this time in the early 1900s as well, or did that come later? Yeah, there was quite a big connection between these uh, cases and um, the presence of spies. Um, I think in 1909 sort of period, there were sort of stories of, um, Germans stashing arms in cellars in London, and that was spying activity. And I think it's in 1909 that um, um, people thought um, that there was um, spying activity. Some of it seems a bit like, you know, men in black salt presence uh, of our own cases. Um, there was one particular case where somebody said they saw an airship and then they um, found washed up on the, saw, uh, on the shore um, a strange um, object with some German writing on it. Right. And then these sort of mystery men turned up to collect it. But apparently these mystery men were from the Ministry of uh, War. And it was some sort of target, um, floating target boy that had been used out at sea. But there was this connection with something seen in the sky and something found on the seashore that was kind of assumed to be associated with the craft and then mystery men turning up. And I think there's a few cases in um, Lincolnshire where I live where people reported seeing mystery men going around with cameras or um, you know photographing different places around the countryside. And um, some of them were... Uh, just genuine German salesmen or something that people, um, you know, thought were up to no good, really. But right. 
where again that was sometimes connected with um, UFO sight. Well, you know, sightings of uh, weird lights in the sky as well, because obviously if they saw a light in the sky, they felt it was kind of probing the countryside. And um, you know, sometimes if you look at something like Venus or, or a bright planetary object, it does look quite strange. And um, you know, if if things like German invaders are on your mind, I can imagine you know it, it would have an impact on people. And I suppose back those days, you didn't have the kind of street lighting we have today. You know, if you go in villages now, they're all pretty well lit up. But if you have a power cut, you realise how dark the countryside can really get. And I think back in those days where we just had gaslighting, uh, anything strange in the sky must have had a you know far bigger impact on you. So I think I think that's really interesting because one of the things that comes through in your writing was um, so when I first started reading it i was looking for like almost an explanation i was like where does the author sit on what is causing this and it seems like and because you know you're obviously um showing good journalism you talk about the fact that um in the same breath there are people who are uh like almost uh led astray by you know peculiar lights and then on the other side there are these airship sightings which appear to be you know grounded in uh and confirmed in many different ways and yet like the as i read it i was thinking well, I really want to ask Nigel what his opinion is on what is causing these things. And I tried to get through it to try and find out what your opinion might be. And uh, uh, it seems like I, I think it's probably what I would do as well. You you, you leave it to the, the reader to decide. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's difficult. You can't really give a blanket explanation for all these cases. And I think each of these different scares in different countries have their own um, little indri- um, uh, differences. Um, but often you get a major case which sets off lots of other sightings. And then you'll get some explanation for the major case and then the media will lose interest. Um, you know, that happens today with, you know, UFOs or any kind of sensation, really. And um, so it's interesting to see how a, a scare can get generated. And I think in 1909, I think newspapers like the Daily Mail were quite keen to highlight it being a German threat because they obviously wanted to um, fund more... Um, air defences and aircraft development. So um, there was a sort of motivation behind um, some of the media to hype up these stories. And obviously some newspapers were more sceptical or some newspapers 
you know, barely give it a mention. So um, I think you've got to look at the fact that, you know, the media does have some sort of agenda and, um, you know, you know, you folks are, are very much affected by that sort of thing. And, and back in that day, it was about, you know, threats from foreign forces. And perhaps I think another problem the British authorities had was that the... Um, Having stoked up a, a sort of airship scare, you literally had hundreds of people in city centres looking at lights in the sky, and it kind of got out of control. So often you did get explanations saying, you know, these kids had let off fire balloons or somebody had been flying a kite. And so, um, you know, there was this um, thing about we can these sort of things can run away from anyone's management, really. But then again, sometimes the explanation for the, the best case is usually um, quite bad, really. And, um, you know, it does make you think, you know, what did really go on? Um, but I think that that's the thing with um, my own interest in the subject. Sometimes you just think, well, it's all psychological and sociological phenomena but then you know an odd case will come along and you read something and you think you know perhaps you know perhaps there is something you know beyond that really you know I think it does I think the other subject stretches your imagination but I think you know like in this book I've tried to keep basically to the facts and people have to make their own mind up and you know obviously with a passage of time um, some cases can get promoted and made to sound more sensational until you go back to the sources, you know. So, um, you know, that's another factor. I mean, it's interesting you, because it's interesting hearing you talk about, you know, almost your sceptical side coming in, but then something comes along. And I think certainly on this podcast me and ben are a bit like that every time we come up with something skeptical you always find something that goes yeah but that's a bit weird i don't get that bit and it, and it just made me think what what sparked your interest in this subject initially where where does this passion come from uh, well um it, it began in the sort of late 60s with the apollo moon landing missions uh, you know, I got fascinated by um, the moon landing and anything related to space travel. And then it kind of segued into um, getting UFO books from the local library. And then the books would mention things like Flying Saucer Review. So I, I subscribed to that magazine. And um, it was kind of like it went on from there, really. Uh, I suppose I think I used to sort of go out in the back garden and I saw one or two odd lights in the sky. And then I'd think, oh, you know, perhaps it was just a, um, uh, a jet aircraft with a, you know, a afterburner like afterburner coming on or something. But, right. um, you know, it just intrigued me, really. That, and also I read a lot of these contactee books, books by George Adamski, which were really outlandish. I think you had two types of books, really. You had the really sort of scientific ones uh, by Donald Kehoe and people like him who sort of um, looked at more um, 
conventional sort of UFO sightings, if you can have such things. But, yeah. you know, we didn't really believe in aliens or anything, but we did believe there were sort of like remote-controlled craft coming here, whereas the contactees, on the other hand, had all these Nordic aliens who looked like humans and taking people away on space flights. And I think they captured my imagination, but I suppose... You know, with me investigating local cases and reading uh, things like Flying Saucer Review, and then I, I subscribed to um, something called Magonia that still carries on as a web- website. Um, you know, I read more, you know, skeptical arguments about things. I think another thing is being in Britain, um, the best cases are always in America or some uh, South America or some other country. And um, so you never know the full facts about a case because it's a, it's almost like the further a case is away from you in time or space, the more um, potent it seems. Whereas if it's a more um, local case, you know more about the ins and outs of it and think, oh, well, you know, this or that could be an explanation. So I think it, it often depends on how the case is presented. And obviously, UFO books um, always want to present the most positive viewpoint of a subject. And um, it's a bit disturbing, really, that you know books that are sort of hypercritical of a subject um, rarely sell well. So you know you only have to look at. Um, the TV channels now are full of ancient alien and UFO programs, and we're virtually you know, 99% pro UFOs. Whereas uh, back in the old days, you had about one UFO documentary a year if you were lucky, and it always had what we called a balanced viewpoint, which usually um, uh, was more balanced towards it being sceptical rather than being, you know, a belief orientated view of a subject. Whereas now it's gone quite, you know, the other way really. And, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's a bit annoying really because I think like with my book, I try to look at different aspects of a case and not just look at it from just one point of view because I think, you know, I think you need to have a sort of an inquiry mind about what what's really going on on really. Well, I I I was going to say I think that's what's interesting about your book is that you come away from reading the whole thing and you don't feel like you're being persuaded in either way. It feels like it's an agnostic viewpoint on the facts, but that leads me to <laughs> want to ask you uh, where do you lie on this what do you think is happening has has your research influenced your thinking um yes i think it has a lot because um like i say i was trying to look at cases that weren't affected by um thoughts of a space age and space exploration because you know that's how i got into the subject because i thought if men could land on the moon aliens could visit our solar system and land on earth you know it seemed quite logical really (laughs) and and so i thought well if you looked back at the old cases you know um with them not being contaminated by that viewpoint. But the trouble is then I found they're contaminated by what historians call um, a sort of air-mindedness, and that people um, 
were really keen on aviation. You know, there were songs and um, musicals and, you know, lots of um, fiction as well as factual books about aviation. So people were quite um, keen on the subject because this is what the future was. And obviously um, there's quite a lot of fiction at the time about, you know, um, airships in wartime and, uh, you know, there'd be great pictures of airships with searchlights and, um, you know, firing and dropping bombs. I think there's also kind of rumours by MPs that, you know, if a fleet of Zeppelins came over London, we could destroy destroy the city overnight sort of thing. So there was a lot of sensation going on. So um, I think rather than uh, finding sort of uh, virgin cases, I just saw that it was just seen again from a different um, a human perspective, really. I think that's the thing. Um, you can't just look at cases in isolation. I think, you know, with looking at the old cases, you can see it have a more holistic view of it. And I think that was a mistake of the early researchers in the 60s who, who came across like the American 1896-97 cases but just found isolated reports. And it's only over time people have collected more information about that period. And I think another interesting point, you know, particularly with the British cases, um, is that historians have taken more interest in the subject. Uh, when I first became interested in airship sightings were just like a little footnote about the history of aviation or something, but quite a few historians and sociologists have become interested in the subject because it is part of the idea of, you know, spy spying and people's perception at that time. So I think it's... It's become a more, uh, you know, academically interesting subject and not just, you know, I suppose with my book, it's mainly just pre presenting um, the cases in a sort of chronological um, uh, order. So I, I suppose that's another thing with a book. I'm just providing the facts and then people can come along and use it uh, perhaps to do further academic research into the wider aspects of why people might be seeing these, or, or ufologists could use it for their own ideas. You know, I think uh, that's a thing, really. Um, you know, some people might say this proves the fact that, uh, you know, aliens are changing, you know, how they appear to humanity are and and how they're um, manipulating us and you know you know it's an uh, it's an idea that you can apply apply to this so you can either you know you can go in any direction really with it but um i think the good thing about it is it uh it covers so much information from so many different sources and people so it's not just my research as well i think that rarely happens with ufology and that it tends to be just one one case or a little local area. So this covers quite a long period of time and different countries and different researchers. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, very fair. Like uh, the number of countries that it covers is quite surprising. I didn't realise it was such a worldwide phenomena. And what is also interesting is the similarity between 
the reports. And that is the thing that really intrigues me because these things are all sort of like early 1900s through the First World War. And then the next time we pick up uh, the major uh, reports, it is the Second World War and we're talking Foo Fighters. And then we get into Roswell, we get into uh, Flying Saucers, and then like right up to modern day, we get the Tic Tacs. And it's like this phenomena is tracking us in terms of what is sort of representative of the uh, the technological innovation of the time. And I find that absolutely astonishing. Uh, I think as well, not just the spacecraft themselves, but also the aliens themselves also change shape. Um, you know, like in the last few years, we've got some greys and... Whereas, you know, before, you know, there's jokes about little green men, but people yeah. did see, you know, little green men. Or, you know, if you look at South American cases, the early ones in particular were lots of little entities, or you had giant entities, uh, whereas they've all kind of morphed into greys. Um, although we do get, there was a recent case of somebody seeing a praying mantis-type insectoid sort of creature, but... Uh, you know, most people conform to a certain image of what an alien um, being should look like. Yeah. And uh, another another factor is with the South American cases, um, the um, aliens often had spacesuits, uh, and you know, probably well in America as well. A lot of the aliens had spacesuits and helmets and breathing apparatus. Um, whereas you rarely get any um, aliens in space suits nowadays. So there again, it's taking it away from a kind of space agey thing to something a bit like, you know, people are more likely to believe the time travellers or from a sort of another dimension close to us or things like that. So, you know, ideas do change over time and, you know, it's same with Roswell, really. When I was first interested in the subject, Roswell was barely mentioned in most UFO books, and now it, it's the main feature, really. So, you know, what you know, in ten years' time, there might be something completely different. And uh, uh, when you um, you, uh, back in the early nineteen hundreds with the the kind of airship sightings, um, were there any stories of alien? Ab- connected with those or is that a much later phenomenon <coughs> but there is a story i think um, i'm not exactly sure of the date of it but there were sightings on the sort of austrian german border of um sort of lights and things and a mayor was said he was dragged inside an aircraft and um flown to another town or something um right. I, I can't remember the full details but you know it might have really happened but or it was a rumor but um there was the odd story i suppose also with the um 
the American airship flap. Um, you often had stories of people meeting the inventors and uh, going inside the craft. Um, but there weren't really, um, uh, yeah, and also there were quite a few stories of airships dragging anchors behind them and people being hooked by the anchors so that they're almost being dragged off into space. And, um, you know, there's a famous story of a, a calf being dragged along by a rope from an airship and then its mutilated remains were found a few days later. And, you know, that brings us in mind of, you know, cattle, cattle mutilations in regard to um, UFOs a lot later. And even in the British cases, there's, although it's only a humorous story, well, sort of dark humour, that somebody said that they'd seen an airship and as proof had seen a, a, a rabbit drop from it and was uh, spiked on a railing outside a house. So that was a kind of proof that um, an airship had gone by. But, uh, you know, to show that was sort of a few bizarre elements to it um, and are repeated in today's um, sightings, you know, with cattle mutilations or animals being affected by uh, alien activity. But uh, I think one of the most fascinating things is um, before we get to the phrase which is ufo we are it doesn't matter what size it is or what features it has we talk about it um and the the um witnesses talk about it as being a airship and then suddenly we get uh the the fact that they're ufos and then we get roswell and then we get everything that comes with that and and then today you know in the in the new york times we get the nimitz incident and it feels like the technology is always keeping up or slightly behind where we are and it's almost like being gaslighted. It's really peculiar. Like all of all of the things that um, you reference, and I, I think that it's really um, that Australia one in nineteen oh eight, where you know they describe it as the eyewitnesses describe it as being the size of an eagle with two wings, but they still talk about it as an airship. It can't be an airship. It can't be. And yet that seems to be the the default way of describing it. And 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 where does this because you've spent a lot of time with this, what does this leave you thinking? Is there a secret breakaway society? Is it an alien presence? Is it misidentified Venus, or is it a mixture of all of them? Where where does your head lie? Um, yeah, I think in a way it's good that you mentioned that it could be a mi mixture of all of them. Um, but you know, it's often you know people will see a light in the sky, and at that time they said it was an airship. Uh, you know, and then 
uh, it was Second World War if I saw a light in the sky, it would be a Foo Fighter. Uh, and there were ghost rockets in Sweden, sort of just at the end of a war. And um, then, you know, with our own period, people see UFOs and things. But it's quite interesting in the 1970s, there was no wave of mystery helicopters. Um, so people attributed um, these strange um um, sightings to helicopters and they linked it to uh, IRA activities and some said it was some um, sort of wealthy person flying around and um, so that was kind of it could have easily been skewered to be a UFO scare but for some reason people attributed it to mystery helicopters and then um in, in Lincolnshire, there was a big headline where radar had spotted something strange on um, uh, flying over Lincolnshire. And the headline was that it was um, an aircraft smuggling immigrants. So it's obviously how people are, are willing to interpret things. It could have easily have been, you know, UFO spotted on radar. So a, a lot of things are down to human expectation, you know, from an observer's point of view to how it's interpreted by whoever is reporting it. And and also in the media, um, you know, it can be like one newspaper would have said it was an airship and another one would have either not published a story or just said it was, you know, rubbish. <laughs> you know, so, um, um, you know, and I think, what I try to do is really think in terms of, you know, the mundane explanations. And then I think you have to have a far higher level of um, evidence, really, to prove anything beyond that. And I think that's a problem with anything where you're speaking about, if it's talk about aliens manipulating our minds, then, you know, what what is real and what isn't, you know, like people... So people said we're all in a sort of computer simulation. So, you know, where where do we go from there? <laughs> you know, um, so I think that's a bit of a rocky road to madness almost if you kind of believe in too much uh, manipulation by alien forces. But, you know, um, that's why I think it, it's always interesting to look at um, films and other media, um, you know, today. But even in... Um, the pre-World War One period, they had silent movies of um, airship craft invading Britain. So even in the fiction of the period, uh, you know, there were musicals uh, where there was a stage show which um, featured invaders on a massive airship. So... Um, there's always these things feeding into the media. It's like feature films now, if you have an alien, it'll be a grey. And if it will have a UFO, it'll start having these uh, TikTok ones in the future. Mm. And then that'll feed back into what people report. So um, I think you've got to look at all the different influences on, on us. And perhaps, you know, some of us are more keen on seeing something really um, extraordinary in this evidence. And, but I think, you know, you have to kind of fit, um, be anchored, really, and look at, you know, what are the true facts of it, really, before you can t- really take any flights of fantasy. And have you always been like that? Or, or as your research has continued, have you become more like that? Has your, has your opinion changed over time? Yeah. 
I think I've got increasingly sceptical. Um, but, you know, occasionally I, I sort of like, uh, I, I kind of enjoy reading some of these sort of alien contactee stories or or reading abduction stories and thinking, you know, you know, how can you explain that? And, you know, some people you speak to or say they've had a contact can be quite convincing, really. So it, it, it's... Um, but I think I've tended to be more sceptical. I think I, I sort of believed a lot more at the beginning. But I've kind of gone a different way. You know, a lot of people begin as, as sceptics and become believers. So, uh, you know, I, I think um, I don't think I'm a sort of hardcore sceptic, but I'm not really a hardcore believer either. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, it's, a, it's one of these things, a subject so vast and so many aspects to it I think you know you just I think you know, at the end of the day you just have to take it as it comes and and some and also that you might change your mind about cases as well yeah and if you if you could be at any one of these incidents if you could have been there which one would you have chosen through your research um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the best case, um, one of the best cases in the book, it's something Charles Fort wrote about, is um, Charles um, Lethbridge. He was a Punch and Judy man walking over Caerphilly Mountain at night time. And he came across a sort of what he thought was a landed balloon. And um, in the basket were like two German officers that spoke sort of German or some guttural language that I thought was German. And um, they kind of, I think they'd leapt into their bucket, and, uh, into the basket of a balloon, and it, it had uh, like two or three electric lights on it, and it took off and flew away. And uh, he, he told reporters about it, and they, um, they went back up the mountain sort of the next day, and there was a big um, furrow in the ground as if something had landed there. And there's lots of news clippings and paper mache. Um, and the, the clippings had stories of like uh, about airships and impending um, war. And there was a few sort of like little tyre valves and bits and bobs. So this is um, sort of like like today you'd call it a close encounter of a third kind because, you know, it involved occupants, it was seen at a close range, and there was physical evidence as well. And also um, some people at Cardiff docks the same night had also seen an airship flying from um, Caerphilly Mountain towards the uh, coast. So... Um, it just conjures up an interesting image of this this man, a Punch and Judy man with his little show cart that is, I think he was pulling or pushing along, and he kind of stumbles on this this um, unusual thing, and um, you know it would be good to know if you know either it was something he, he made up or you know it just sounds. It sounds just right for the period for something like that to happen. Mm. And, of course, you know, um, ufologists have said, you know, this sort of guttural speech is much like, you know, the kind of thing um, 
contact, well, not contactees, but people who have been in contact with an alien have experience. So it does have elements of a kind of UFO encounter as, as much as um, perhaps a, a, an airship, well, a, a balloon, really. But it seems highly unlikely the Germans would be operating, you know, um, such a thing at night. And, you know, the chances of being caught would have been very high and, you know, would have caused a massive diplomatic incident. So, and also, you know, it makes you wonder where the, the balloon would go to. Would we be able to um, actually go back to, say, a German cruise and actually land or anything? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. when you look at the practicalities of it, it seems impossible, but the man stuck to his story and was all this, you know, did he, would he have put this uh, um, furrow in the ground and seeded all this evidence? It seems a bit odd thing to do, really. Yeah. Well, your, as I've said before, your book is so full of references and eyewitness accounts there is nothing in there that is um just kind of left to chance the bibliography is is huge and so it's obvious that you've put a lot of time and effort into this so after all of that time and effort and the peculiar things that you've reported in your heart where do you land on this do you think that we are being visited by extraterrestrials, or do you think that there is some sort of secret government program going on, or something other? When you when you go to bed and close your eyes, where where, where do you land? Um, I I just see it as a fascinating. Um aspect of human history that's um, I don't think there is anything more conspiratorial conspiratorial than that really and um, yeah I don't think it is uh, alien intervention um, I think that's more down to human imagination but you know some cases like the Lethbridge case do make you wonder what what is going on but I don't think there's anything like a, a coordinated conspiracy. I think um, some people tried to argue that uh, the Sonora Club and um, other people involved with the phantom airships were uh, often of German origin and they seemed to connect the German airship technology was developed and then... Um, it was also the fact that um, mystery aircraft were seen in, in Europe and that we think there's a kind of continuity of um, German technology and you know, Nazi flying saucers and things like that and that was some sort of secret organisation that's been running uh, in the background all this time to, to, to create and operate uh, from airships to um, flying saucers. But... Uh, you know, I, I don't really subscribe to that because I think it's just uh, something that would be very difficult to maintain over more than 100 years. But, um, you know, um, I think there's somebody called uh, Harbinson um, brought out a book called Genesis, I think it was called. 
and that kind of puts forward these theories in a, a fictional format, but he does put facts out the back of a book to kind of support his ideas. And, um, you know, people have um, um, been quite keen to think that Foo Fighters were sort of early German flying saucers and the technology was then transferred through Werner von Braun and other German scientists uh, that was monopolised by the CIA. Um, you know, the CIA have been sort of um, behind a lot of UFO sightings and cases, but, um, you know, it's all kind of speculation, really, so I'd rather keep my feet on the ground and just think, you know, this is, you know, just a fascinating thing about human activity, really, and our perception of a world or um, our perception of, of a... Um, the world and beyond and finally do you do you think we are heading towards uh disclosure or do you think that is a fallacy um i think with disclosure i think it's something ufologists have kind of sought from the 50s uh donald keogh was quite keen on trying to wrinkle out evidence i think the problem is the government governments, particularly the United States government, has been very secretive. And so when they have finally had to be transparent through freedom of information acts and that, it's just looked worse, really, because what they've released hasn't been that great. You know, there isn't a smoking gun. So people always think, you know, we're releasing one level of top secret information, but there's probably, you know, above top secret information. So I think that's a problem of trying to track down things. Um, but, you know, people like David Clark in Britain have, have, um, have worked really hard to get the public record office to make a lot of UFO files um, available to the public. It just shows from the files we've ever seen from whatever government that we've collected a lot of information, but we're no um, clearer about actually, you know, retrieving a, a flying object or anything. You know, we never get anything um, really firm about, um, you know, retrieval of craft like that at uh, Roswell. Um, there's no um, documentary evidence of that, except, say, the MJ-12 papers. But there again, they're you know, more likely to be a hoax. So um, that's another thing, really. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really think there is anything in the government files, because I think at one time, you know, a US president would have released all this, because they know very well that, you know, the public would be... It's screaming out for such information. So I think, um, you know, it seems highly unlikely there is anything there, but obviously um, the less information you get, the more likely people think they are hiding something. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I think it, it adds waste to a lot of ufologists' time, really, because you think... You know, no government can suppress this evidence because, um, you know, governments haven't got control of UFOs. If it's a superior alien species coming here and crashing a craft or landing, there's no way any human organisation can stop them. So, you know, uh, surely it's more worthwhile 
just to try and find uh, witnesses or evidence of your own, really, uh, rather than just trying to, you know, knock on the doors of government where, you know, you've released lots of information, but it's it's never that satisfactory, you know, so we're kind of on a hide into nothing. People think there's a self-progression towards disclosure, but I think, um, I don't think there's anything to disclose, to be honest. Uh, what what are you working on now? Have you got have you got another project in the offing? What are you obsessing about? <laughs> um, I've just been um, I've just become a columnist for uh, Forty and Times, so I'm going to do a regular monthly flying saucer news column. Brilliant. Starting with the next issue, <laughs> so that's going to keep me occupied. Um, I've written the UFO Investigations Manual for Haynes, which is a kind of summary of ufology up to the present day. And um, um, my latest book came out last year, that's uh, Captured by Aliens, that looks at uh, how the American sort of abduction um, phenomenon has come about, largely looks at the um, Betty and Barney Hill case. Um, One... One book I would sort of like to put together is just a collection of uh, some of my past writings and some of the cases I investigated in the sort of 1970s and early 80s. It, it came out as um, <coughs> a book called um, Portraits of Alien Encounters, uh, but that came out quite a long time ago, so I kind of like to revamp that and add perhaps a few other cases to it just to sort of um, and perhaps look at a, um, just a wider context of my own viewpoint on the subject. But right. I've not really got any immediate plans for any books. Doesn't sound like you've got the time. <laughs> no. Well, f- thank you, Nigel. This was absolutely fascinating. And it it's so intriguing to find somebody who is sort of walking that line uh, with scepticism, even though your book presents so many really cool facts. And I just want to recommend it to anybody. It isn't expensive. It's a very solid read. and it. Uh, but to properly get through it, it took me a week, and I was absolutely enamoured by it. It's such a beautiful read. I'm glad you like it. Oh, I do. Yeah. And I think it's also a book that might encourage other people to do, you know, um, particularly in other countries, to look up some of the um, the cases of our own country, Um, you know, particularly uh, in in Europe. I think there's probably a lot more evidence to be found. But, uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot more evidence digital resources so it's probably easier but you know it can be a bit mind-boggling looking through you know newspaper after newspaper yeah 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 no absolutely absolutely so if people are wanting to find out more about you where should they go do you have a website um um, I'm on uh, Facebook and uh, I've got a page called UFO Investigations Manual. And I've also got a page called, uh, I think, UFOs of the First World War. Um, so you can kind of track me down on there. 
Um, I also write on and off of the Magonia website, which um, if, if you Google it, you should be able to find it. I think their actual address is something like pelicanist.com or something, co-UK. Well, we'll, um, we'll put links to those, uh, those pages uh, in our social media anyway. So if people go to at TQM podcast on facebook uh then we'll have links to that which will be connected to the episode brilliant nigel it's a real pleasure real pleasure talking to you it really was yeah it, it really it was fantastic i feel like i've learned a lot and um i just want to thank you for writing that book it was it was so enjoyable and so interesting and i think anybody who is sort of getting into the ufo phenomena and is intrigued by like the mysteries of it i think uh nigel's book around the ufos around the first world war and it starts a little bit before is utterly fascinating and i think it will leave you with so many good questions it's 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 an astonishing book Great. Oh, thanks so much for that. Um, thanks for having me on. I think um, it, it's always quite daunting having to speak about a book. For, you know, it took so long to write, and then it's sort of like uh, there's so much detail in there, so it's hard to you know cover everything in there. And you know, like you say, it's something um, it's something um, that's got lots of information, so that people can. Uh, kind of realise how extensive these um, scares were and also, you know, to do their own exploring. Oh, well, like, there is nothing in your book that isn't referenced and then super referenced. It's 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 so well-researched. I would recommend it to anyone. I have been glued, absolutely glued to it. So, yeah um nigel thank you so much for joining us it was a very great pleasure and thank you for giving your time all right cheers what an interesting guy ben really really interesting so interesting like i think that um it's really in it's really easy to be sort of drawn into either side of the debate particularly when you're talking about these really sort of enormous things that happened whether you buy into them or not and i think it shows a real sort of strength of journalistic spirit that he still maintains a sort of uh, a down the line could be could be not I yeah, really balance, balance. That's what a balance. Came out of yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and, I, and I guess it reminded me a bit of what we've been trying to do with the podcast. You know, it's like hear the stories. You know, try and collect some evidence around it. If there's no way that you can come down on either side, try and remain open-minded, but always be. Yes you know skeptical but open to the idea that something might be going on it just just that's what he reminded me of you know maybe that's me projecting Uh, absolutely absolutely and and the evidence that he brings to his book is it's eye-opening it really is and 
And yet he never once says, oh, it this proves this or doesn't prove this. He, he always leaves it up to the reader. And like, and I'll tell you what, that bit of the interview, actually, that really stuck with me. You know, when he was talking about the amount of programs on TV, about UFOs and, you know, and we know this as as, as producers of TV that they come down at an angle and you almost try and make your facts fit the story that you want to tell. Yeah. You know, and I've had it, you know, those kind of shows that, you know, doc- documentaries that, you know, oh, look at all these alien bases on the moon type stuff and they show you a photo and go, there you go, it's it's proof. And you go, well, you're not giving me any other kind of explanation of what that can be. You're just giving me one side of the story. And I love yeah. his balance. Yeah, he, yeah, and I think that is the healthy, healthy way to be. I think the the whole, the Foo Fighters... Uh, the the airship scares of the early 1900s, the will-o'-the-wisps, and then today, uh, to prepare for this interview, just in case it came up, I was reading a lot about the Battle of Los Angeles, and I'm not going to go into that now. If you if you know what it is, you yep. know what it is. Yeah. If if you don't, I'm going to do it at another time. But the Battle of Los Angeles comes up. Uh, the photographs of that are two to three years before Roswell. There, two to three years before yeah. the term UFO is taken up. They, the object that appears over LA, it it comes on radar. The photograph it appears is from uh, a uh, an AP Newswire journalist. Yeah. There's a lot there. I d- but, but I tell you what, actually, that's what sparked off in me listening to Nigel, was you think about that story, I'm thinking of the Phoenix Lights while you're talking about that, Rendlesham, yes. all those yes. things, yes. which we've not covered because we've been like, they've been done to death. But, yeah, yeah. But maybe they haven't. Maybe they've either been done from a, you know, purely, oh, my God, it was alien craft or an oh my god it was you know i mean there yeah. are, that's unfair there are balanced documentaries out there but i think we've not covered them because we've we've almost been what's the word tainted yeah, in ba- my bamboozled by yeah maybe yeah i i agree i agree and maybe we should cover them a bit more i think we've said before we've almost leaned away from the subject of ufos because of that reason and because of the amount of noise on the internet but i think nigel slightly inspired me to yeah go we well we should we should put a quantum mechanics view on some of this yeah maybe. no i absolutely agree i absolutely agree and, and the and other I... sorry one more thing i well, know i've got me on a roll he's got me all excited now um the other thing that really struck with me as well was the the when Nigel talked about airships almost being the generic term at that time for a UFO. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. And that's just really... And it's kind of the point you were just making about the Will-O-The-Wisp type stuff. It's it's not just you project your own uh, thoughts or or impressions of something you can't quite comprehend. 
there's almost you have to bear in mind there is a language of the time which might not relate to how we see it now. Yeah. So you say, oh, we saw an airship, like your eagle point. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like he was trying to say that's could be just they saw something and the generic term for when you couldn't understand it was it's an airship. Yes. Like it's yes. a UFO. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And like at, at the greater scale and, you know, we're not going to go into – this now this is for another time but this plays into like biblical things like burning bushes and all of that the 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 whole language of these unexplained phenomena is absolutely crucial to the understanding of it and it seems to me that the language flows with the times so Mm. like like we said there we're talking 1909 and uh, the the whole talk is about airships. We fast forward to the mid nineteen forties, and we're talking Foo Fighters, so lights that are moving faster than uh, the speed of sound, and keeping pace with bombing planes from both sides of the axis. And then we move again forward to. You know, the present day when we've got the Tic Tacs from the Nimitz incident and those are uh, moving at way faster speeds than US fighter planes can catch up with them. And and so I think what we've got is it's either we've got a phenomenon that is sort of playing with us or we've got a situation where we're able to spot things that we weren't able to spot before. But I, but I also wonder if there's a wider theme there, because I, I, I made a note while, while we were doing the interview, and I, I made a note, and I just put, it reminds me of Ruth Roper Wilde, and there was a bit where, you know, where, do you remember when we, we interviewed Ruth Roper Wilde, who's, uh, for the listeners who've not heard that episode... Uh, go and check it out but uh, she's a a writer of people's real life ghost stories and we were talking to her about why do people always see a Victorian lady or why do they see Dick Turpin or why do they see a monk and she was saying well either they can't comprehend it or they project it and there's similar themes going on here and Nigel also talked about incidents like Willow the Wisp were either put as supernatural or into this category of mm. what we would call in modern day UFO. Yeah. And we seem to, even now, you think of those two topics as two completely opposite things. But yeah. actually, I'm not saying they are, but maybe they're more in, intertwined than we realise or give them credit for. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And it, it just t- it comes back to... One of the things that we always talk about is like the trickster spirit and the that that sort of um, the where this is all coming from, and like it's really it's difficult to imagine. Like, well, it oh, it's easy to imagine how in the First World War you have these uh, objects which show themselves as dirigibles as what people would fear as German airships. And then the Second World War, you get these fast-moving lights, and then in current times, 
<clears throat> you get these peculiar things which defy the laws of physics. But every single one of them is related to the current state of technology. But every single one of them is enigmatic. And it just, it like, it goes back to is there something that is messing around with us? And it's really hard to understand where it comes from, but I would say this is all trickster stuff. Yeah, but it's like, it's interesting. It, it, I, in a way, I'm kind of with Nigel on this point. It's like, you know, it would be great to kind of get there. But as he said, with all the going to the government for information, you just end up a little bit disappointed and frustrating. And actually, yeah. you, you know, I think what, what I find in with us doing these things, it's almost the journey of the, and the story that's exciting. You know, do you know what I mean? And yeah. exploring these themes is what's interesting because, you know, realistically we're probably not going to get to an ultimate answer. And well, probably if we did, we wouldn't be doing the podcast anymore. (laughs) I'm saying I don't want to, but you know, that's, it's the enigma of it that makes it so fascinating. And, you know, just going on the journey with it. And I, and I kind of got a bit of that impression from Nigel when we were trying to press him on what his belief in all his research was. It was like, he just looked like a man or sounded like a man who was enjoying being along for the journey and digging into this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that no. kind of that's how I feel, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and you know what? That is true of pretty much everyone we've ever spoken to. Yeah. The particularly our friends who were researching Jeff the Talking Mongoose, same thing. Yeah. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. And and it every time it turns out to become the phenomena is something that everybody kind of tacitly sort of understands can't be solved and so depending on how you look at it people just go okay i'm going to enjoy it and 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 then when you come along like we've started this podcast of trying to understand what it is it just eludes you it just kind of it screws with you and it but that keeps you coming back yeah it keeps you coming back yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's well on that note i hope i hope people listening (laughs) keep coming back we haven't just turned you off with that conversation (laughs) keep coming back keep listening keep reviewing um keep oh, following please um, rate and review rate and review god uh, if and if. and we will put links uh to nigel's book which is nigel watson ufos of the first world war uh, we'll put links in the title of the podcast don't click them and till after you've listened to it otherwise you'll be taken away from the podcast and they will be on social media and as ben said during the interview and we've just said now it's a fantastic book nigel's a fantastic writer with a incredible detail for research and a real open balanced mind which is a pleasure really on this when this topic comes up absolutely it's it's an extraordinarily good book if you've got uh, amazon prime it's less than nine quid delivered 
and it will you'll think that it's light reading but it isn't it there's a whole load of really in-depth information in there that will make you think again about so many things and it might even make you have a conversation with your grandparents or your great-grandparents if they're around uh, there's uh, there's a lot of really good evidence in there. I was completely surprised about how brilliant a book it is. He's he's a really great author. Well, that's got to be all vibed up, so uh, you can be guaranteed we'll be back with another great episode next week on the quantum mechanics. Is that too boasty? I've gone I've gone all non English there, didn't nah, I? I went no, boasty. We're, we're fine. This is this is. This is great podcast there you go we'll be we'll be uh we'll be back next week whatever happens uh, see you see you next week we'll be wearing our gold pajamas the quantum mechanics.